And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This moment in real time when the eternal Son of God became a finite human being is the apex, the centerpiece, the climax of all of human history. It's right, therefore, that we date all of human history every year, every event of every year, by the marking of the, by the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, right? That's where we get our AD, Anno Domini, Latin for year of the Lord, and BC system. Because early on they recognized this changes everything. We need to have all other events oriented around the thing that we are remembering tonight, the coming of Jesus Christ. That moment, that singular life, is the most important landmark in all of history before and since. Before Christ, you know, there's all this light imagery and all of the collects and the, the different the songs of ground Christmas. There's all this imagery of light and there's sort of a lot of layers to the, the meaning of, of what it means to call Jesus the light or the gospel the light. Um, but one of the things that's really symbolized on this day also is before Christ came, the only people who had even the slightest really accurate idea about who God was were the Jews, right? They were the only ones who'd been given some real revealed insight into who, who God really, really was. Everyone else outside of the Jewish people didn't know that and, you know, metaphorically were in the dark. And so when Jesus comes into the world, that's actually the shining of light onto the sort of who God is, like the mystery as if the heavens were sort of a thick layer of clouds um, that get parted, light shines forth, and we can actually see a bit more about who God is. And beyond uh, just the Jews, right, the famously, as we're going to celebrate in a few weeks' time, at the Epiphany, some of the first worshippers after the shepherds were the wise men, Gentiles, so it's this news, this light is no longer just for Jews, it's for Gentiles. And the light gives us a fuller picture, right? The Jews knew that God was one, but only when Jesus is born is it revealed that God is also three. Uh, the Jews knew that God was holy, but only when Jesus was born is it revealed that God is also merciful. We get the fuller picture. <coughs> And ever since, of course, uh, this famous day, of which has marked all of human history, the news about this God-man, this Jesus, uh, has spread abroad. And you can kind of picture the light spreading throughout all of the, the territory of earth, all of the lands, this good news, this revelation of who God is. And that light was kindled in this little uh, animal room, some barn of whatever sort it was, um, when Jesus was born. This is the kindling of the fire that would then blaze throughout all of human history on every continent. The light that would enlighten every nation was when that tiny, uh, slimy baby, uh, for some of you, including my own wife, is a, very, you know, is a very tangible picture of how wild the incarnation is. This little baby is the light of the world, revealing who God really is. Now humans can know God, we can know God, and not just in the way we would know a fact, right, but know him personally, as a real person. And in that knowledge, uh, to be rescued from the thing that's plagued us from our first parent, right, the, the nativity proclamation, that old thing which we began with, 
uh, marks time with, from the beginning of the creation of mankind. That since then, since Adam and Eve, we've been crippled and destroyed by sin and death. Um, and that in being able to now know and relate to God, uh, that, that era of only being crippled and only dying is over. We now have a hope of resurrection and forgiveness for our sins. And it all began uh, on this day. And one thing I want to say about the gospel lesson that we heard is um, every detail about what happened on this day is significant. I mean, think about if you were um, planning a really important event, like a, maybe a landmark birthday or uh, a state event or something, you, kinda, you would pay attention, right, to every detail to make sure that everything was kind of focused and communicated what the day was really about. If you go to some big fancy birthday party, you get all kinds of things like keychains and napkins and everything's got monograms on it. And, you know, everything's kind of focused on the one object of the celebration. And I offer to you that, you know, God is not some, you know, we're always having to overcome this uh, late enlightenment idea of God being sort of far away and only a little bit involved in the world and our world. He's really involved. And he's not just sort of, sort of like, okay, I'll just send my son and okay, I hope it goes all right. He's orchestrating every detail on the front end uh, to communicate about himself to us. So every detail is important and um, I want to zoom in on just two of the details in the verse that I just began with, Luke chapter 2, verse 7. These details, Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, that's one. And then this other detail, because there was no place for them in the inn. Soon after Jesus was born, uh, wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. One thing about this sentence is completely unsurprising, right? Any mother about to have a child would have some piece of clothing to keep the baby warm in, just regular old swaddling cloths uh, she'd obviously brought with her. That should be unsurprising, um, but it, it should be surprising that he was placed in a manger, right? I mean, it's something we have to remind ourselves because of our joy in Christmas and its familiarity here in the West. That manger isn't just the Jesus word for baby bed, <laughs> as we kind of come to think of it. Um, it's just a regular feeding trough, right? It, it's a sort of work a day. Uh, if you have a farm, um, it's, uh, it's just a regular, it would be just a, a metal, like an ugly, cheap piece of furniture um, where Jesus was placed. Undoubtedly, within hours before Jesus was placed there, animals would just have been eating out of it. And that's where the saviour of the world, the light of the world, gets placed. Of course, in the moment, um, this is just a matter of expediency for Joseph and Mary, right? They don't, it's better than the cold, hard ground. Let's at least put this baby on some straw. Um, but what for them was just expedient also reveals uh, God's hand and sort of orchestrating all the details of this uh, strange and wonderful day. St. Luke is sort of fixed on it. Um, in that passage we read, he names the manger three times. Uh, I think he's really kind of focused, like, on a manger. Like, there's something to be picked up on in this. What would be the significance of such an odd crib? I think, really, there's um, at least two layers of symbolism that are worth paying attention to. Um, the first thing is it, it actually um, teaches right out of the gate that who Jesus is isn't just some sort of another man who's going to do his own thing, but that in some way he is himself sustenance. Right? You go to a, if you're an animal, you go to a manger to eat. And by placing Jesus in a feeding trough, 
It's teaching something like, this is someone who you're going to be sustained on. And so much of Jesus' teaching is in that vein, right? He's talking about living water and never being hungry again uh, as metaphors for how vital and sustaining it is to come to know him. And even uh, in John chapter 6 especially, he's repeatedly referring to himself in different ways as food. And part of what he's getting at in teaching that he's food, which is a very strange teaching, um, is that whereas regular food keeps your body alive for however, you know, however many calories you take in, would last for a few weeks maybe, uh, days or weeks, encountering Jesus enables you to live forever. That's the connection. Like Food is the stuff that keeps you alive. And Jesus is the one who, who really keeps you alive. That's the, what's at play in the food metaphor. When we approach him with faith, it's as if we're feeding on him. And, and of course, this actually gets actualized right in this thing that we've all gathered tonight to celebrate Holy Communion. That when we get to eat bread that's been blessed by him and wine that's been blessed, we, in a spiritual way, we actually also get to really eat him. We get to feed on his eternal, immortal life and bring it into our bodies. And all of that teaching, which Jesus makes really clear in uh, Capernaum in John chapter 6, it's kind of shadowed forth, right, by being put in a feeding trough. There's symbolism there. And, and, and where, the, where the whole situation takes place, I love the, the, the guiding hand of God that we see in this event that we remember tonight. You know, he's in a feeding trough in a city, Bethlehem, which if you take Hebrew 101, you, can, you learn the words for that. It's bet, house, and lechem, bread. House of bread. So Jesus, the living bread from heaven, as he would later call himself, is placed in a feeding trough in a city called House of Bread. Like Jesus, God's trying to tell us something about who this man is through all these little details. Luke is trying to point this out. Um, so that's one layer of symbolism that we see it, just with regards to a manger. And I think there's a second. Um, the second layer of symbolism actually comes out more clearly uh, with a, if you uh, look into, I'm not very big into archaeology, but if you look into archaeology, um, you know, we th- when we think of a manger, we, we think of something kind of like this, right? Like some sort of wooden construction, like all the ones that children's pageants and stuff. But they've done a decent amount of archaeology around Bethlehem. And uh, in houses around Bethlehem, what you had was like living quarters and then dug out a few feet below, almost like this stage, you'd have the animals sort of being heated in the room of the house. Um, and then at the very end of sort of where that lip would be, they would dig out a trough, and that would be the feeding trough, and you'd put hay and scraps of food and whatever for the beasts that you brought in at night. Um, so it was cut into the ground, just a divot. It wasn't, almost certainly wasn't like some wooden construction, it was just a cut out in the rock. And that's what animals would eat out of, and that's what Jesus was placed in. So if you kind of redraw your nativity scene in your mind, and then kind of put these things together, He's wrapped in linen and placed in a cutout in the ground. Does that, does that ring a bell a little bit? It should, right? I mean, it actually looks very, very similar to how his mortal life would end. After he'd been killed voluntarily uh, for our sins, was wrapped in linen and placed in a cutout in the ground, in a tomb. So we get this, sort of, and this is God, I mean, we think it wasn't humans that invented literature and literary devices, right? God is the great storyteller, and he orchestrated these little details. That here, that again, that, that what this child was born for um, was for a death, 
that all of Jesus' life, the reason he took on flesh, is so that he could die as one of us. If he just appeared as a 30-year-old man, he wouldn't really be one of us, because none of us ever does that. We all begin as some slimy little baby. Um, and so this is why uh, you even hear some of the great teachers of the church talk about the incarnation saving us. You know, we know from the scriptures that it's Christ's death and resurrection that really saves us, but his incarnation is sort of the, the necessary link to be able to die for us. So it's, they're all connected. And this death that he would die, the way he'd be buried, again, I think is shadowed forth, kind of a living prophecy, if you will, in his very first day on earth. It's a powerful little detail. So that's um, the first detail, the swaddling cloths, uh, swaddling, uh, tongue twister, <laughs> swaddling cloths uh, and laid in a manger. And the second detail that Luke points out in this verse is that there was no room for him in the inn. Um, which is again a foreboding sign to occur at the coming of the saviour of mankind. Here he is, the son of God in the flesh, born to fulfill all of the Davidic promises in the city of David, and there's no space for him. I mean, what an insult. I mean, if you have sort of family located in one town, and you went there, and there was no lodgings for you, that's insulting, right? Like, if anyone should have had a place to stay, it would have been Joseph of the Davidic line. But, but no, um, there is no room for him. Which again, we see, you know, what a living picture, even of this first day of his life, what a sort of tragic element there is and how rejected he is by the people he came first and foremost to save, right? No room at the inn is like a motto through the Gospels. Like he goes to his hometown, in his own family, his brothers and sisters don't believe his mission. In his hometown, he gets no honor and there's so little faith in his hometown, Mark actually says he can't do any miracles there. And he goes around all of the Jewish people and just again and again is rejected until the vast majority hand him over to um, the secular authorities to be killed. There was no room for him in the inn his whole life. And, and of course the real tragedy, as all of the, so many of the Christmas hymns bring out rightly, is that this could st- is in many ways is still the case. Right? There are millions of people around the world who Jesus come to them and they said, oh, no thank you, no room in this inn. Uh, and it's the task of Christians, of everybody actually, to sort of go against what seemingly is this fleshly instinct to keep Jesus away uh, and actually to invite him in. The, um, I think the reason there is sort of this, uh, the, this refrain, no room at the end, has just been repeated through, in so many sad lives and so many ages um, is because when Jesus comes into the inn, as it were, as into your life, inevitably uh, he will claim what is his, which is lordship and kingship, uh, which will mess our life up a lot. We'll have to give up a lot of things and change things and seek him and it turns everything upside down. Who would want, um, actually, all those things? And, of course, the answer is uh, only those who want what this man is offering, eternal life and forgiveness and a knowledge of God and the joy of a life lived in service of him. Um, so my question for you, and I know in some ways, you know, I know most of you, I recognize almost all your faces. I know um, all, most all of you love God and already know him. But it's always an act, every time, every day, but especially every time we come together to say, yes, again today, again today, I welcome you into this life. Lord, I, I welcome you in. Come in further. Maybe I've let you into some parts of my life, some parts of that inn, as it were, um, but not everywhere. 
And so tonight, as, we, as you come to communion, um, do the opposite of the resident of Beth, residents of Bethlehem uh, and ask for Jesus to really come and dwell within you, as he promised to do, especially in this holy meal that we celebrate tonight. Come, as it were, um, to this feeding trough. Consider this a manger in which we will come to feast on the immortal life of Jesus. Amen.